Hi everyone, welcome to the Ali Houston Transforms podcast. I'm Ali Houston, health coach, food innovator and scientist. I survived years of weight problems, mental health issues, autoimmune diseases, surgery and even cancer. I turned my health around by diving into the scientific research, changing what I eat and what I do. I founded Paleo Canteen and the Ali Houston Transforms podcast to not only share this life-changing information, but to engage in a process of discovery and illumination with my guests and all of you. This podcast is made possible by paleocanteen.co.uk. Head over there after the episode. You can find a link to download your free guide, Six Pillars to Achieve Your Healthy Weight. Transforming into being healthy is so much more than just a list of foods. It's a rich process of becoming that never stops. Head over to paleocanteen.co.uk or follow the link in the show notes to find out what I mean. And if you find this episode useful or interesting, please share it far and wide, or even just with a friend. Thanks, and enjoy the show. And we are recording. And I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Carlo Bellini, who is a medical doctor, coach, entrepreneur, and speaker. Welcome. Thanks so much, Ali. It's so nice to be with you and your audience. So we met... Um, well, early last year, I believe, or was it the year before? I think it might have even been the year before. <laughs> yeah, all the sort of pandemic stuff all rolled into one. Um, because you were my health coach, coach. You were my yes. health coach teacher. Indeed, coach, uh, lead coach, and and an instructor to uh, many different people learning the art of coaching and health coaching. Yes, and. I had a brilliant time doing the, the course. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we picked up uh, where we left off recently, uh, chatting about coaching and how we were getting on. And I really wanted to talk to you on the record, as it were, about what coaching is and um, what it isn't and what each of us does with coaching and and how it taps into something which is really about who we are as human beings beyond kind of beyond what we were just talking about um, with um, biohacking and mm-hmm. trying to measure the world around us with um, scientific instruments and the, the, the belief that that is, you know, 99% of who we are as people if we can just measure this then we can get that result um and so i really want to explore this messy area of who we are as human beings and how coaching um allows us to gain some kind of understanding and at least a rudder if not a, a mastery does that sound like a uh, yeah, a yeah, reasonable yeah. summation of what we talked about. Yeah, it, a- absolutely spot on. So, wh- why don't we start with w- what coaching is and yeah. and, and what it yeah. isn't? So, firstly, I'm, I'm a medical doctor, so I was I was trained in in uh, in medicine in Australia, and the area that I worked mostly was cardiology. And perhaps I can share a story that might lead to an intro into what coaching is. Please. So, cardiology is this really interesting field um, in healthcare because it's acute medicine. Someone comes in with a heart attack and they're having a a life-threatening event. 
but there's often a chronic history that's 10, 20, 30 years in the making to that acute point. And when I was working in, in, in medicine and clinically, I was always fascinated with people's own journey and why they made the decisions that they did, the behaviors that they had, what they choose to do. And in cardiology, it was this interesting cross-section where you had decades of suboptimal choices, smoking, obesity, diabetes management, high blood pressure, a lot of preventable or reversible conditions, and that it would culminate in this um, point where people would have this acute event, life-threatening, but they wouldn't change their behavior. And there was one patient that, that stuck out to me in terms of his journey where he came in with a heart attack. I asked him about his smoking history and he's just swore to me black and blue. Like, absolutely, I don't smoke. Don't smoke at all. Like, I've quit, doc. I've quit. And I was like, did you ever smoke? He's like, oh, well, you know, yeah, maybe. And I was like, well, tell me what happened. And he said, well, I, I used to smoke for 40 years. But I quit yesterday. Doc, I quit yesterday. And, and three days after his heart attack and swearing to me, like, so convincingly that he was over it, I, I walked outside the coronary care unit, looked to my left, and he was in a wheelchair with an oxygen mask in his left hand and a cigarette in his right hand. And coaching is working with people to explore their own emotions, who they are as an individual, their values, their beliefs, to drive behavior change to reach the client's goals. And if we look at our approach in healthcare, and if we examine what, from that perspective, what coaching is, we see that most of our approaches in healthcare are actually very didactic. They're very directive, didactic, education, information, and there is this scientific approach that if we tell people what the science says, people will understand that, interpret it, and change their behaviors. Smoking causes cancer. I should not smoke because I don't want to have cancer. That's really the traditional uh, approach. And that works for some people. But what we know is there's still low smokers. There's still a lot of people with obesity, diabetes, chronic health conditions. and Coaching offers an alternate approach, which is if someone's a smoker, someone's obese, got diabetes, and uh, I'll share another specific example that I had with one of my, one of my students, um, described it, who was a dietitian who described a situation where couldn't but help but in some way feel um, really almost disgusted about one of her obese patients that was just like gone on a donut binge. And it was like, bad patient, why are you doing that? That's the more traditional, that is bad for you, do not do that. The coaching approach would be, tell me, how do you feel when you eat the donut? What's the emotions that trigger you to eat the donut? What's the emotions that become that soothe you when you have that behavior? And in that curiosity, we take away judgment. It's pure curiosity with the client at the epicenter of that engagement and what we call the, the client's agenda. And we be there and we dive into the curiosity of that judgment. And from there, there's a belief in coaching that you can elicit insights in the client, in the patient that they couldn't otherwise figure out themselves. And the way that I describe it, um, and the analogy I give, which I think is really neat, is that I'm climbing my mountain and I've got my own journey to go on. And you're climbing your mountain and you've got your journey to go on. 
But from my mountain, as the coach, I can see your journey and I can see it in certain ways that you can't see yourself. And from that, it's all focused on what's the client patient's goals and how can we actually support them achieve that, but with the client or patient at the epicenter of the decision-making and accountability. Yeah, that, thanks. That's a really nice summation. Um, and there's a couple of examples in there that resonate with me personally. You know, I think actually during the training, um, this came up, the story of how I quit smoking. You know, mm. I used to smoke 40 a day when I lived in China, where it's almost like a patriotic duty. I saw doctors mm. smoking in, in the hospital corridors there. When I went to, uh, a, absolutely. I went to a wedding, um, the groom was standing at the front door of the hotel uh, with a tray, a silver tray of single cigarettes. And the centerpiece of every table was um, a big bowl filled with packs of cigarettes. It sounds mm -hmm. ridiculous, but um, I didn't stand a chance. You know, I've got a very addictive personality. Um, I smoked before I went, but it just went into turbo drive there. But I didn't quit because I knew that if I kept going, then it would most likely kill me. It was because I read a scientific article that said that when smokers are smoking, 80% of their dopamine comes from uh, ingesting nicotine, which disturbed me. I thought, I'm regulating my emotional landscape pretty much all by smoking. And I would rather interact emotionally with the world uh, in a more um, authentic way. And mm -hmm. so this is what for me is so important to understand about, um, about the coaching relationship is you have absolutely no idea what someone's motivations are until mm -hmm. you speak to them about it. And to be honest, a lot of the time, like you said, they don't even know until they're asked about it. And we, we, we so little have these conversations with each other in that way, the depth, the non-judgment, the taking the time, holding that space, that is amazing what comes out of people. They can't believe it. And they've, I don't know if you've found this with your clients, but very often what um, comes up in the first session is there'll be high-flying individuals and they'll say to me, I tell my team what to do all the time. I run their professional lives and I can't run my own. And mm -hmm. it's crucial to have someone else. There's this magic that happens in the betweenness of the interaction. It's, ni it's neither all the coach nor the client. It's something that happens in the interaction. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think it would be really interesting for... Uh, our audience if we just did a little bit of a, a deeper dive into what you shared about your own personal story because it will highlight some really key points so you said you, you, you were smoking a lot in, in China and and you knew smoking is bad for you it's like it's 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 really well established information and the change for you came around when you read the paper and around the dopamine and what smoking was doing for you so can you share what were the emotions that you felt when you had that realization about the dopamine? Yeah, I was disturbed. I thought, oh my mm. gosh, I'm not really uh, interacting in a full, authentic way with the people around me, my loved ones, strangers. I'm putting up 
essentially like you know uh, a fence made of cigarettes between me and mm. them emotionally and that disturbed me yeah and, and and let's go into the disturbed tell us a little bit more about that it's at the time it was about realizing that um i was guarding myself um it 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 was it wasn't it wasn't clear to me at all that that's what i was doing um there was a sense of enjoyment when I smoked. There was a sense of calm. There was a sense of a buzz. But um, I had no idea that I could be cutting myself off from people at the same time that I thought I was actually connecting myself to them. Hmm. And in that disturbed feeling, I'm going to put something out there and, and, and see where this lands. How much was shame part of that? disturbed feeling hard to say it was a while ago now um mm. i think it was there for sure it was um i i think i i, I couldn't i was astonished that i had been doing that without realizing it and i think there must have been some shame that i was unable to regulate my emotions you know I think um I think that was definitely there you know I thought oh, well I guess I need this I have needed this up till this point and certainly after I quit it took me a long long time to come to some adjustment uh, emotionally because I had been I was right the paper was right I had been regulating my emotions mm -hmm. like that so there was some shame as I realized Man, I'm I'm actually not well practiced at um, interacting emotionally with the world, and um, it didn't last long. It was fleeting. It kind of spurred me to improve in that regard, and it, that was a very positive thing. But it was there, yeah, yeah. So, so one thing that I so frequently see, and and thank you so much for for sharing your story, Ali is. And, and a couple of insights that, that are very common patterns. You'd been doing this behavior for a while, but the perceived value, joy, fun, socializing of the behavior was, was here, and the perceived cost was, was here. It was less than the benefit, basically. And what happens to people in change? Change is a process. We often think of change as a destination. I'll start my new diet. I'll stop smoking. These, these, these are points on a, on, a, on a continuum of time, but that point is just a outcome of a process. It's not like a destination that we start and, and, and we carry ourselves wherever we go. So to think that, you know, on, on Monday, uh, I'm going to start this. It's just like, you know, you're the same human doing battling the same things. So you're at this point where you've got this, this benefit from the smoking and this, this cost. And in reading that paper, what it did, it, it reframed your thinking about it. And it shifted that the smoking and your perceived benefit significantly dropped. And the cost of you getting this, what you thought was social connection, opening up, emotional engagement, empathy, you're like, actually, I'm being, I'm being controlled by this, this substance in the cigarette. It's actually not authentic me and I'm not experiencing this. And, and the cost of that elements 
I suspect some parts of shame. How did, how did this happen to me? How did I end up in this situation? Elements of loss of control. I'm not actually in control of what I'm doing and who I am and behaving. And now the imbalance exists the other way. And there is enough emotional energy traction to flip and you make that decision and you stop smoking and you're like, I, I, I'm going to live differently. And I see that with so many people have that same story, whether it's smoking, whether it's weight and obesity. So uh, a couple of, of, of clients that, that really stand out to me, um, someone who a male in his, in his late twenties had struggled with obesity his whole life. Really, really, really big benefit of eating the food, the cost of being overweight, the benefit of the food and all that was greater. Didn't change. What changed for him? Reached an age that he wanted to start going on dates. Couldn't get one. Girls weren't attracted to him. And he's like, if I am actually going to be able to like date in a way that I want to date, I have to change it. So now the cost and the pain of being obese suddenly shoots up. The benefit of the food and the enjoyment suddenly comes down. And you see that shift. That's when you get true behavior change. And, and what coaching seeks to do is accelerate that shift by asking powerful questions, curiosity without judgment, putting the, the client at the epicenter so that it's not people that are just like stumbling along, like you said, in that, in that emotional naivety or that convenient uh, blind spot that so many of us live our lives in. It's more the pursuit of, of emotional truth. Yeah, beautifully put. And, you know, you, you talked about change also being a, this process rather than a destination. Yeah. And I think that's so true. You know, I mentioned to you um, when we weren't recording uh, the last time we spoke about um, Ian McGilchrist's book, The Master and His Emissary. It's something that I brought mm. up with, uh, with Dr. Ian Campbell um, when we had a fascinating discussion about his new study on keto for bipolar Mm -hmm. um he you know recovered from his bipolar so he's very interested in the workings of 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 the mind and you know it makes me think about the, uh, one of Zeno's paradoxes that McGilchrist brings up um particularly the arrow the, the arrow paradox where you think well um, an arrow is either uh stationary or it's um moved to its next part mm -hmm. of flight but if it's moved to its next part of flight then it's not where it is right now Mm -hmm. so therefore an arrow can't move mm -hmm. so there's no such thing as a as a moving arrow and it's a, it's very easy to 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 follow that and think oh yeah well, that must be true but of course the resolution is that there's part of our brain that that appeals to and part of our brain the common sense understanding of the world that knows that those words that manipulate us into thinking something mm -hmm. um cannot be true and that these two understandings of the world can coexist and that that's part of what it is to be human. So when we talked about biohackers, there's nothing wrong with understanding the data about your body, but to think that it is the full picture is even just from a common sense view, obviously not correct. And certainly when you think about what we've spoken about so far, it can't be true because you know, if we think about how we describe the health of an individual, 
and we say they do 50 kilometers a day on Strava. They, um, they make sure that they, they stay in a particular uh, range of heart rate, um, that they wear blue blocker sunglasses, mm-hmm. um, that they uh, get seven and a half hours sleep every night. This really doesn't tell us anything about the person. It's like saying yeah, that it's like saying that you know Carlo is an Australian um, doctor. It, it doesn't really tell you anything. At some point, you you have to say, well, actually, you're just going to have to meet them to understand who they are. And I think that sums up part a big part of what's so important about coaching. It's this meeting. Mm. So, so there's a lot there. So let let's unpack a couple of things. One one is the the philosophical um notion of truth and what is truth and so i think this is a really interesting um discussion and i was just uh having uh, actually a, a phone call earlier today with my girlfriend and i'm like who can know what's truth you and i have the exact same conversation and we're both participants in it and we both walk away with different truths Right. So from a coaching perspective and from, from a psychological perspective, there's a really interesting notion of like, who are we? And I really dived into this. I went on a, on a, on a Buddhist uh, monastery retreat in, in South Korea m- many years ago. And we met with the, the monks and the monk said to, to, to my friends and I, to understand thyself, you must destroy thyself. And initially, I was rather perplexed by this statement about what it means. And, and, and I percolated and really sat with it for, for some time. And, and I think it, what it really highlights is this notion that each of us to ourselves is actually a construct in our own brain. We've built our identity. Now, when we meet here, like, Ali is a person that exists in my brain, but it's based on the data set of our interactions, what I know of you, what you do online and the like. So I've built a construction of Ali and you've built a construction of me. And similarly, we each build constructions of our friends and our partners, but that one individual actually is, is a variety of different individuals to others. So then you go, okay, let's take that. That seems pretty reasonable and plausible. And I think people get that concept. You go, okay, what about ourselves to ourselves? And we're actually just constructions of past experiences, emotions, ideas that one time when you were a child and you felt really unloved or or rejected or the one time you got really, really hurt and you held it in. And, And those narratives, those stories, those words become our truth. And like what we were talking about, about that pursuit of truth in the emotion and the pursuit of truth, like you were telling yourself, you, you were firmly in the belief that smoking was this great, like pretty fun thing that you were part of. And then something shifts your framing on that and flips your truth. And you, it opens up and unlocks an insight. And I think what you highlighted there about from, that's talking more the psychological, emotional side. And then we talk more about like the, the, the physiological side, the quantified self. Science is really the pursuit of truth. And we try and get as many data points as possible to try and link things in patterns and the like to try and show that. Now, you mentioned the person that's doing the 
you know, 50 miles on Strava and, and, and loving it and just working hard. The thing that I find is it depends on what's really your motivation that determines perhaps the quality of where you're at and, and your truth. Because I've got people that I've worked with that they do it for the love of the run, the ride. It's a real enjoyment. I've got other people that do that because they're driven immensely by guilt and shame in their body. And they might look the same, just like you said. They might, might look the same. They might be fit. Their Strava profiles might look really similar. But the truth for one person is that they're actually just running away from, from their shame, from their fear, from their guilt. And it's actually a pretty unhealthy time. And the, the, the truth for another person might be actually, this is a pursuit of joy and, and passion. So you need to dive under the hood to really unpack what's going on with people. Coaching does that in a very um, safe, shared vulnerable way with, um, with that special client coach relationship. Um, but we so often don't do that with people. We so often are quick to give our opinions, quick to give advice, quick to tell people what, what I think of you, what you think of me, rather than seeking to understand in that engagement. Totally. And the, this truth, is really truth brackets s close brackets because mm -hmm. just like you say the the truth of who a person is is their own truth an objective um set of data it's also the truths that are held by anyone who's ever interacted with them it's um it's it's also the betweenness it's the truth that um you know we each hold simultaneously whilst we're having a conversation there's something about what's between us in an interaction and mm -hmm. i think coaching just like you say it discovers what that is in a vulnerable way there's no way of making that between the special unless it's a peer-to-peer -peer thing and when um and when a, a healthcare professional or or just a friend or loved one gives you the truth quote unquote uh, about what's wrong with you and how you need to change it you know they do like a, a jeremy kyle or a or a um you know jeremy kyle over in the uk is like a kind of um mean oprah who like yep. uh you know like uh just tells people what's wrong with them and the audience yep. kind of whips and hollers <laughs> that is not that is that is a truth but it's not the truth and mm -hmm. this peer-to-peer -peer thing about coaching, I think, is super important, that it's not about our truth being handed down by an authority. It's a co-discovery of a very special type of truth, which is elusive and sometimes seems to retreat when you uncover it, but is all the more powerful for it. And I wonder... What is it about your coaching that is uh, developing towards a particular specialism? That's something that we wanted to talk about. You know, where is it going and why? Yeah. So I, I it's always interesting to see who I work with, who reaches out to be work, who, who to work with me, and uh, and then referrals because you can see then different people that that come. So. I work with a lot of executives and, 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 and leaders in, in a variety of different fields, especially healthcare. And 
it's so interesting that their, their, their challenges are so often challenges of the mind in terms of mindset barriers that they've built barriers they won't be accepted that they're making the wrong decision what's going on how can i support myself it feels very lonely here so there's elements there around performance i work with a lot of people that are seeking to progress through their feelings of being stuck whether that's to do with their physical health whether that's to do with their emotional well-being but being stuck is something that is 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 quite very frustrating and causes pain and and i see that pattern really appear whether it's your profession whether it's your relationship but there's often this group of people that they know that there's something going on but they're blinded to that truth they know there's something and they're hovering i just had a had a session yesterday with um a person that reached out his issues fear smart guy really lovely guy fearful of making a mistake because he has never developed a relationship with trying things failing at things and that being okay so you know there's a variety of different people i get um an increasing number of clinicians coming to 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 work with me and my 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 newest venture is actually um overall it doesn't matter like what demographic you come from or the like the the problem that i'm trying to solve and now having worked so much in in coaching and healthcare in in general in general business just working with people working across people if i if i had a magic wand and i could solve a problem it would be to absolutely destroy the barriers that you've built in your own mind and your own head that tell you that you're not enough that tell you that you're not beautiful that you're unworthy that trigger you to feel guilt that trigger you to feel shame because i just see that so much in different people and manifested across so many different dimensions of life and i think whether you're a parent and there's elements of that in your parenting and perfectionism and feeling like you need to do the best job and always put it there and that anxiety can be intergenerational to your kids whether it's you're stuck in a job and you feel like you can't move even though you really want to because you don't have the feeling of confidence to actually take that leap because it feels so risky or the like that's the area that i i'm really um focusing and supporting people and all those different segments that i mentioned before really in many ways that's a very common thread across all of them and across all people because what we spoke about before in that creation of ourselves and that construction of our own identity we create those own barriers we've created those walls in our head and if we created them then we can knock them down yes i believe that when when we try to convey how we can help people i feel like this is something we've spoken about i feel like there's a challenge in um articulating someone's problem to them in a way that is true to the problem but also uh easily understandable on the face of it so this is what we were talking about creating content that connects with people who we can help how do we put into words something that is um a kind of you know uh like uh, a kind of swollen sea of 
of um, dark emotions that, you know, I had to use a metaphor there, I felt, because it's, it's almost undescribable. So how do we go about, um, or how do you go about describing people's mm. problems to them so that they know, oh, well, that's me. And it's not just saying, I can, I can enable you to ride 50K on Strava every day. It's, it's going to that other place. The, I'd suggest a reframe in your question, which is, you said, how do you describe people's problems to them? And I, I don't necessarily describe their problems to them. What I do is I engage with people with curiosity, no judgment, and I ask very powerful questions to get them to feel their own problems. Yes. So before you even get to the sessions, mm. how do you connect with them? You know, yeah. if someone's wandering along uh, da, 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 on Instagram, in the, on the street, at the work, whatever, and they have this um, kind of, uh, you know, like a, a kind of a upsetting, dark um, ocean mm. that's, that's really getting in their way of, uh, of their emotional world being all as it should be, then how do you get past that veneer of everything's okay, la, 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 I don't want to think about mm. it because it's too overwhelming? So I think, um, so the first part is um, language needs to resonate and be aligned. So whenever a, a client describes something in their own words, I, I don't change their words in my summary or replay back to them. I literally borrow the exact words because language is very powerful. Because if we say, use just for example, the word confidence, that might mean something different to you as it does to me. It might mean something confidence to me might be this huge feeling of like empowerment and to you, it might be just like the ability to get something done. Whereas if you say it and I can use that same language back to you, then I, I, it doesn't matter what the definition is. It's consistent because you go there. So I think there's a first part there in your, your reach out or the way that you engage with people, the language is very important. They have to like connect with the words. The second part is there's something there that's got to highlight the stuckness. It's got to highlight the actual pain that that person is feeling. And it needs to tap into that right language, the pain, and present a possible alternative world. So we often talk about, you know, do I want to, do, do you want to, let's use uh, weight loss as an example. Do you want to lose weight, right? So many people want to lose weight. Everyone wants to lose weight, right? What most people actually want is I want to feel beautiful. I want to feel confident. I want to feel desirable. I want to feel sexy. I want to escape my shame. I don't want to feel judged. All these emotions is actually what people want, but it's very convenient to say, do you want to lose weight? because they see weight loss as the path to that, not even recognizing all those deeper layer things. So, so to me, in terms of like outreach, engaging with people, trying to, if there's, if there's people that are running, running businesses um, and, and listening, um, 
or not just running listeners businesses, but you know, being a good friend and like, there's an element there of, I really want to understand your pain, put myself in your situation. And then from that point, what's the alternative desirable future? Yes. And what you were talking about earlier of the, the process of change, you know, mm. if you make yourself vulnerable by offering to hear about other people's vulnerabilities, you will get a lot of people who the, the fear of being vulnerable will weigh trump the, um, the, 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 uh, the enticing um, proposition of getting all this shit off their chest and actually yeah. maybe making that progression. So a lot of the time when you put yourself out there like that, when you recognize someone's pain in a non-judgmental, discreet way, they quite often just change the subject, right? Yeah, absolutely. P people love emotional comfort blankets. And the emotional comfort blanket most commonly is a form of avoidance, procrastination, not moving towards. So um, I actually, uh, I've, been, I've been thinking about this concept recently in terms of like the, the, the joy and I use that word, like the joy of actually eating dirt, right? And I don't mean physically eating dirt. I mean like the metaphorical element there of going through this, this suffering and this pain. And it's, it's somewhat Buddhist in its philosophy and sentiment because it's the acceptance of suffering as part of life. It's not the running away from it. Now, not to say that, you know, people love it and, you know, joyful and, and the thing, but the concept and that, and that word like triggers feelings, right? Because you go joy and like eating dirt, like they don't go together. Joy and pain, they don't go together, right? But as humans, we ultimately have a choice to like walk with the discomfort and suffering, which is inevitable in, in whatever it is, whatever part of life it is, relationships, uh, business, work, parenting, and being parented, it's, it's, a, it's all inevitable, or avoidance and distraction. And if we look at, you know, you talk about the cigarette, the dopamine hit, our phones, what an epic avoidance distraction mechanism a phone is, and how epic are the companies like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube at like, feeding you stuff that you just like keeps you in that dopamine loop. And I think that in many ways is a, a plague and a disease of the modern Western overall on, on average, relatively wealthier world where many of our, our core needs are met, not for everyone. There's indeed certain segments and I'm not, not discounting that. But for a large percentage of the population compared to the historical past, um, they, the, the people's needs, are, uh, core needs are met. And then it leads into this band of emotional need and emotional challenge. And, and I think I um, may have shared with you before the proverb, uh, empty stomach, one problem, full stomach, thousand problems. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think we see a lot of that increasing in our society yes for sure and um you know this uh plague of distraction if you like is it, you know it ties in with i think my experience of materialism and 
um, studying a, a hard science like physics. You know, I've got a physics degree and a lot of mm-hmm. the people who uh, studied with me, they are really nice people, um, but they are very um, allured by the idea that the world is fully measurable um, and fully understandable, fully manipulatable by, um, by us as humans um, who have reached the, you know, the apotheosis of, uh, mm-hmm. of control. And it's a super alluring um, state of mind. You know, Lord Kelvin, who taught at University of Glasgow where I went, was no different. He, he thought in uh, around about 1910 that that was it. Physics was done. It was all just about getting more accurate decimal places. And then quantum physics happened and um, turned the whole physics world on its head. And in a way, quantum physics is like a great analogy for what we're talking about here because, you know, there's this thing called the wave function, which you don't really need to, you know, the listeners don't really need to uh, be able to derive or anything to understand what it's about. But it's a, an evolving um, description of the world that they, they say it collapses. So it, 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 until you measure something, it is, a, it is a smear of possibilities. And it's an ever-evolving process. So even in their materialism, a lot of my physics buddies are ignoring the fact that not even their world works like that. Not even their world has one right answer. There's a duality between wave and particle and physics, which, which very nicely mirrors the apparent paradox of, of pain and pleasure that we have to live mm-hmm. with day to day. And that there's books like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance or Dancing with the Wooly Masters, which try to convey this fact that there's, yes, there's physics, there's hard science, there's materialism, there's truth there, but there is also all this um, humanness connection with the world that can't be described in that way. And if, if we can accept that apparent paradox, then we're probably going to feel like more complete human beings. And mm. notice I didn't say the word happier. Because that's mm. not really the goal in a sense, is it? Yeah, so there's a there's so much interesting there in in in, in what you said. I, I think that there is this growth and trajectory of data. And we try and use data to explain the world and often predict the future. And from what I see in in my experience now, coaching, teaching thousands of people, humans are quite predictable. There's indeed certain archetypes of personality, certain patterns, your your past behavior, your character, which is actually quite predictable to the future. And how will you react in X situation? What emotions will you feel in Y situation? And I think there's a bit of a, um, some people might feel that they're more 
where each is special snowflake. And, and I, I, I disregard the, the sense that we're each special snowflakes because I think actually we're not all that unique in the sense of our overall pervasive behavior traits. However, the feelings, the experiences, this interaction, what's going on in, in me, my brain, my consciousness, that is something that's much more unique to me, unique to you, unique to everyone. It's not measurable currently. We can't, we can't measure that at all. And I think there's something there to be uh, revered and respected. And that to me, there's that duality, right? There's like who I am as a human, who you are as a human, our pervasive personality, our pervasive emotions, character is destiny. We will respond in reliable, repeatable ways, but there's something also entirely quite random in the way that the world will interact. The opportunities that will present, the consequences of things that happen, there's this randomness and this predictability. And this is, uh, I, went, I went to a talk on astronomy some, some years back and there was something that it really, um, really left this, this powerful um, reflection in my mind. And it was, it was talking about the, the end of the universe, not just the earth, not just our solar system, like the universe. And it was essentially like, it was like the universe, like, like we know that all the stars around at some point in each solar system will burn out at some point, right? What remains? So let's let's think about that. Like the universe is made up of all these different areas. And now let's bring that back down to our solar system, right? So all these different stars are all some point by definition likely to there. Now we don't know on the creation of new stars and the like, but we know that they're going to end at some point. So let's bring it down to our solar system. And that's there's a predetermined part of physics that we know that the sun is going to end at some point. It's, I think it's like trillions of years. It's going to burn out some, some significant large number far beyond us, but it will end. It's a predetermined outcome that the sun will end, earth will end and the like, just like our own lives will end. And you hear that. And some people have an immediate reaction of like, that's pretty morbid. That's pretty bad. Why are we talking about that? I found that like so empowering that not just like I will end, not just all the people I love will end and, and, and the people in the world will end, but it's actually like the earth will end, the sun will end, we will all end. And then it comes to this question of in that duality of like emotion experience, uniqueness, wonder, awe of the world, and that like predictability that it will end, like what do you take from that for your own life? And how can you use that to actually like, you know, we're here for a fleeting moment on the planet. How do you want to actually like make it count for you? Yeah, very powerful. And I, I want to come back and talk about the, the needs thing because, you you know, we, we, we spoke about, um, you said, you know, uh, empty belly, one problem, full belly, a thousand. Mm. And, you know, I, I, uh, we spoke before about the hierarchy of needs versus a hierarchy of values mm. and i think this um 
is an, another nice expression of of that dual duality. Uh, you know, you've got Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which, to my understanding, is based on a sort of Native American understanding of needs and even the wigwam shape. Um, it's like a pyramid. So you've got your physiological needs at the base with like, you know, air, water, food, shelter, clothing, um, mm. and then safety needs next up with, you know, employment, resources, health, and then it goes up to love and belonging. So you've got things like friendship, mm. intimacy, uh, sense of connection, and then up to esteem, second from the top, respect, self-esteem, status. And you can see that there's something becoming different and rarefied about these things up to the top mm. where it's self-actualization, which is this desire to become the most that one can be. Mm. Um, a lofty ideal, if ever there was one. Indeed. Um, and the, the, there's something in the description which is is needs is the right word you know it's like a it's like a you know I, anyway let's let's make the comparison with the hierarchy of values and see what what that just shows without too much without too much comparison from me that you've got this hierarchy of values where at the at the base you've got what they're called values of utility so um you know uh economics politics productivity so it's a different character of things here and then next mm -hmm. up you've got like the sensual values so the agreeable and the disagreeable and then up again um the vital values the noble and the vulgar and then up again you've got the mental values so the beautiful and the ugly the right and wrong truth and falsehood and then at the very top the divine values holy and unholy idols and and the divine and I would suggest that the Maslow's hierarchy of needs appeals to our, the part of ourselves which wants to measure things. Uh, do I have a, a roof over my head? Do I have a job? How much does it pay? How many friends do I have? Um, mm. You know, the, the, it's not so cut and dry. But the, the, the values are the other part, the part that's harder to define in words. You know, this sense of awe and wonder that you mentioned to me is at the very top there, the value of the holy, the divine. It's um, even if you're not a religious uh, person who goes to a, an organized church of some description and you know, and and sticks to the the holy book of that of that religion. Surely, everyone has the capacity for that sense of of wonder, which you might call the divine, and that it's not that it's either or. You know, we don't need to deal with needs at at the expense of dealing with our values, but it feels like it's a good idea to understand both. Do you agree or disagree? And you know, how does that mm. how does that come into coaching? Do you think? Yeah. So I think when you mentioned about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and and the part of us that um, seeks to measure, I'm not sure if it's the part that like seeks to measure or, or it's just more it can be measured. Mm. Whether you have food or not is a binary thing. Whether you have shelter or not is binary. I think that um, I, I I overall agree directionally with what you're saying in terms of. Um, the values hierarchy and that framing is is more around 
the less measurable, more qualitative, experiential components of life. And, and I think in some ways, it's almost like it's taking the top of Maslow's hierarchy, the self-actualization piece, and like expanding it into a, into a new framing. So those other parts are more physiological, uh, sociological, and then there's the part about you at the top, which I think is really interesting in, in, in that concept of, of self-actualization because one part that I, I find quite curious as, as a question, say the word you used in describing it was about you know, reaching your potential essentially. How much of that is a need of ours as humans? How much of that is something that we get told in our modern world that we should have? And we've constructed this expectation that we need to do it. And I think in our, in our Western world, we see that a lot, right? Like chronic dissatisfaction. No matter what you do, there's an element that you won't feel fully satisfied because there's an expectation that when I get to this point, I will feel X. Or you know, when I buy that Porsche, I will feel Y. Then you get to the point, but you've brought yourself that, that journey. The, the physical parts have changed, the, the title that you've got, the job that you've got, you got married, you thought you'd be someone else when you reached there, but you're actually just carrying yourself everywhere. And then it's taking the triangle and expanding it. Well, what's really under that? Where do you sit in that value hierarchy? Let's explore these different areas. And I think at a, that is a certain type of work that we can do in coaching. So sometimes coaching is very clear about the, the, the client's goal. It might be, I have a triathlon that I want to do in X time. It's very focused goal. The one I think we're talking about there in, in values is more where the goal is, I want to be my best self. I want to be the best partner that I can be. I want to be the best father, mother, son, daughter that I can be. I want to be the best human that I can be. And let's explore that. And I think a useful framing that people... Might, might, might find valuable here is I, I have been recrafting and I work with a lot of clients around what people take as you know very common a to-do list and you know we all probably have one you probably have one you know it's stuff to get done tick 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 and let's park the to-do list and let's actually reflect interrogate ourselves and create the to-be list What are the actual behaviors, values that you want to be in your life? And if you get clarity on them, which I think is like the, the values triangle, if you get clarity on them, the to-do list will fall out of them. I love that because you've got this sense of um, a destination versus a, a, a way of being, a, a process, a mm -hmm. uh, um, almost like, the human as a conduit for life, you know, that life inevitably brings things that we have absolutely no control over. So why not adjust ourselves to be the kind of conduit we want to be as much as thinking, 
when life reaches this point, I will have this, I will, this will happen um, in a way that we can try to do and there's, there's value in it. But um, having this to-be list, I really like that. So what do you think might be some of the items on a typical to-be list? Yeah, it, dep- it depends on you and where you're at in your life. But the, the, the common things that I see from a lot of people that generally when they dive into this area makes them better as humans. One is to be more vulnerable. And if you unpack that, because you go, what the hell does that even mean? How do I be more vulnerable? I was in that situation a few years ago when I was doing advanced training and coaching as, as learning to be um, building my craft and be the best coach that I can be. And then you have to be the client as well because you can't, you can't be the coach without being the client. And uh, yeah, yeah, some years ago, there was this, this real realization. I was like, I need to be more vulnerable. But yet, what is it? So what is that? It's when to be progressive and forward moving when every part of my body tells me to avoid and procrastinate. It's to be honest and truthful when I know that saying those words will create discomfort somewhere. It's to be compassionate and caring even when I actually feel hurt and I want to run away. These different parts, when you, when you actually unpack them down, it be, they become very profound value statements. Yeah, that's really powerful. Do you think there's a, a nice method to be, you know, obviously, you know, that's what the coaching is. It's uncovering these um, ideal values for us as individuals. How does it take a long time, do you think, to get there for people? Or is it sometimes just bubbling right under the surface? It, it really depends on um, the individual and their context. So we spoke before about change as a process and there's um, a theoretical model of change, which puts us, there's five stages of change to go through to reach essentially your, your behavior change point. There's pre-contemplation, the part where you're like thinking about maybe, maybe I might do something, um, contemplation, readiness, action, maintenance. Essentially, you move through that. The stages of change, you cannot avoid. You can't skip one or the other. What you can do is you absolutely can accelerate and you can click through a couple of them very quickly. So I think what I find in in most people is that depending on what they come from, and if they do raise their hand with this, there's something bubbling under the surface. There, there is something there that they, they want to change, they, they, they want to achieve, they, they, they want to bust through some pain that they've got in their life. 
And absolutely, you can unlock that bubbling in a quicker way. I said to a client of mine a few weeks ago in a session, her situation is that she, she knows she's in the wrong, the wrong job. And she's made a application to commit to several more years in a special program in this job. But the emotional burden is there of this. The cost is there. But the fear is also there because the alternate path is unclear. She's got a sunk cost working in this. And there was stuff bubbling. When she reached out to me, there were things that were bubbling there. And I said to her in our consult, your life is two emails away from changing. <laughs> it's just up to you if you want to send them or not. <laughs> Whatever it was, that, the context of the consult, a couple of other things that we experienced, two hours later, she SMSed me saying, sending a photo that she's withdrawn from the program. And four hours later, she sent me an SMS saying, I just resigned from my job. She, <laughs> she, she wrote the two emails, right? But the thing is like, that, that was bubbling there, but she would have sat with that discomfort for so much longer. So you, you absolutely can elicit it. And I think what this really hones in, Ali, is that the following observation of human behavior. And that is humans nearly always choose long-term chronic pain over short-term acute pain. We're in the job that we dislike, we're in the uh, relationship that we know is not really right for us. We're like really enjoying what we eat, but we're like overweight and the like. And humans will ultimately, they don't feel like they're choosing it, but they ultimately are choosing long-term chronic permanent pain over that short-term discomfort. And really in, 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 in what you mentioned is it's about how can you refocus quickly to really take that short-term acute hit, which invariably is, 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 is often a lot less painful than people imagine it to be. Yes, there's a cognitive distortion and emotional distortion involved mm. isn't there um we rattle things around in an echo chamber in our own minds and our hearts and yeah uh it's it's, it's hard to rip off the band-aid yeah it is it's hard because it means taking that like short-term hit and it's often not just the um it's often not just the hit that is the painful perceived future. It's often the emotional baggage that comes with it. It's like if I try X and I fail, well, the actual trying of it is not the hard bit. It's the perceived emotional baggage of the shame, the guilt, the feeling not good enough, the embarrassment, all those things. And just like you said, that cognitive emotional distortion is so frequently so much larger and louder than what it actually is in life. And that's what I was saying before about like the eating dirt. It's the process of, it's not the destination of whether you hit it or whether you don't hit it. It's not the destination of whether you succeed or whether you fail. It's, it's the destination of like, 
I actually can orient myself that I'm going to do the process, invest in myself, believe in myself and take the hits. And, and that's where, that's a superpower. The, 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 the framing that I, I share and we really explore in the, in, in the masterclass that I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing in the, in, in the newly launched one that I mentioned before, we do a bunch of all these activities to try and like get people inside into you know, who you are, where you're at, where you sit, what do you want to work on? And a concept that I find really, really useful when you work with people, we all very clearly understand muscle recovery. And we understand the concept of, you know, you do weights, resistance training, muscles tear, when can you do weights again? What's the recovery period? There's a similar there concept around emotional recovery. From doing something and having an emotional insult, how long does it take me to recover, to be vulnerable again? And for some people, they've got a very short emotional recovery window. And obviously, this is a generalization. It depends on what area of life as well. Some things are much more of a larger emotional hit than others. Other people, though, and I think you're either one of those people or, or, or you know those people, or you live with those people, they've got a really long emotional recovery window. They're the ones that like, you know, I did it. It took me so long to get the courage to do X. I did it. It didn't work. I'm not touching it again, right? And there is a superpower in trying and working on reducing your emotional recovery time. That's very cool. And yeah, because well, what we said, we're, we're all going to die anyway. The solar system is going to end. You might as well shorten it and max it out while you're here. <laughs> yeah. And is this... Is this exactly the same as the saboteur or is this just related to the saboteur? Maybe you could talk yeah, about so the saboteur. Sure. So the saboteur is a concept in coaching, which is essentially we personify the, the component in your inner narrative, your inner voice that sabotages what you really want. So when we think about, we spoke before about the, the concept of um, construction of identity and who we actually are is a construction to ourselves. What that means is we each have different components of ourselves. There's who you might identify with as your true self, but there's often in, in, in nearly all people, we have these different components. There's the, the, the voice in your head that tells you like, you're not enough. There's the voice that might tell you, it might be the same voice, it might be a different voice that tells you, why would you try that out? Or you wanna, you're at a bar and, and, and you, know, you see someone that you'd love to talk with. It's like, oh, why would they wanna talk with you? So th those different um, voices or components um, in coaching is often referred to as the saboteur or the inner critic or that negative narrative or any of those words, they, they all work, they're fine. And the important part in coaching and, and, and what we try and do is to divorce the saboteur from yourself. Quite often people in that construction of their identity, that negative inner voice is expansive and it feels like it's you. It feels like it is your voice, a very authentic voice. That's all that, but it's not, it's a construction. It lives with inside you. It's not you. So the way that you actually can reliably use that to like overcome it is first recognize what it is. 
get curious about it. What does it say to me? How does it sound like? Is it, uh, is it you know, more like perhaps the fairy godmother, the evil, the evil stepmother? Is it um, a dust cloud that we that I have? My one is particularly it feels like a dust cloud. It's all consuming. Is it the voice of you know maybe your mom? Like whatever it is, what does it sound like? When does it come up? What does it say to you? And then a really neat tool is to name it, to actually give it a name, so that when you think about it, when you refer to it, it's no longer you. It's a separate entity that just so happens to live with inside you. And I think all the different things that we've, not all, but many of the different things we've spoken about today are concepts around this saboteur. And the saboteur is a subset of those elements of like ego identity, construction of self, who we actually are. And quite often those walls that, you know, hold us back from achieving what we really want, they're, they're absolutely built by those sabotaging identities that live within each of us. Thanks for a great summary. You know, the, my um, referral to Ian McGilchrist and the left and right hemispheres mm. uh, earlier definitely picks up on the saboteur. The left hemisphere wants to present a self-contained, um, fully understood, described in words, pictures of the world. And I, mm -hmm. would, I would think that the saboteur is much more of a left hemisphere construct where it tells us what the truth is. But, and we listen to it because it's so loud and so sure of itself, but mm. it is a truth, not the truth. And Absolutely. It's, it's something that comes up, um, that came up when I started meditating. Um, before I changed my, my diet and my mental health improved, you know, like a quantum leap, meditation was extremely helpful for me. I had intrusive thoughts. I had ADHD symptoms. I, you know, I was diagnosed with ADHD. Um, I had, uh, you know, anxiety, depressive thoughts, and all the rest of it. And meditation was very helpful in making it clear to me that my thoughts were not me. They were something that lived inside of me, and mm -hmm. I had a choice to listen to them or not to some extent. And the way I ended up thinking about it, completely unbidden, was when I was focusing on my breathing and a thought would come up to me, I saw it as like a fish swimming over to me. And I would look at, I would, I would pick up the fish and I would look at it. So this intrusive thought um, became, instead of like my disturbing truth, became a disturbing occurrence in my brain that I had the choice about whether to, you know, take out the water and eat for lunch or just put it back in and let it swim away because it was deformed or too small or whichever way you want to put it in terms of that metaphor. But um, it's a very similar process of getting distance between you and the parts of you which are, you know, serve some evolutionary purpose, but can be quite damaging really. And it's so interesting as well that you describe yours as a cloud of dust because I had a client who did exactly the same. They described their saboteur as a dark cloud of dust. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have these um, we have these saboteurs in us. You know, I described mine as, uh, I think I called mine Alan the sneaky bastard because <laughs> he, he creeps up on me and he convinces me so perfectly that, that, 
this is the truth of the world. And then I realized, wait a minute, this isn't me. This is Alan, the sneaky bastard, um, speaking through me. And um, it's such a useful tool. And it's, so, the, in a way, yeah. this, in a way, the saboteur is is kind of one of your main specialisms now, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing, even in what you spoke about there, right? So, if we deconstruct what you've done with Alan, the sneaky bastard. So the first part is he exists, right? And he's a sneaky bastard. So that voice in your head that previously was probably like pretty powerful, pretty loud of, of Alan. Now, now, not only is it like separate from you, but it's a bit of like this, this, this caricature kind of thing. Alan, the sneaky bastard. That when we say it, like there's an element there of like can't sort of help but smile. So, so, so what that does, that, that very, very simple, very simple technique of listening to what that saboteur is, naming the saboteur, it first now disarms the saboteur. When it comes up, you have agency to go, that's not me, that's Alan the Sneaky Bastard. And that's a part of me. So it, it's disarming. The, the, the second part of what's really useful about that is in divorcing it, you've now got more agency. So who's going to make the decisions from here? Like, is my best self, Ali's best self, going to decide what to do? Or am I going to, like, hand the reins over to Alan the Sneaky Bastard, right? So so it's so neat and powerful, like you said, in, in terms of, you know, what it's given you. And I just see the impact of that negative inner voice, that negative saboteur in almost everyone almost everyone and it just holds you back and there are absolutely reliable predictable repeatable ways of managing it and working through it and that's something that you're offering at, at the moment isn't it yeah absolutely so um the way that this originated was I kept getting requests from people to work with them in this space. And, and it was both um, training coaches, but also individually and different groups and exploring it. And, you know, I, I also from my own life, you know, my, I've got a loud saboteur as well. I'm not immune to any of this and, and, and work through it. But I see that is just such, it's like a switch in the sense, like it's a process to work through. But once you reach a certain point that you can tame Alan the Sneaky Bastard, you, you become the process around accepting the pain, accepting the suffering as part of the journey, it becomes a superpower. And um, so I, I, I crafted what I've called the Inner Voice Masterclass, which is a, a, a virtual interactive experience. We do it over four to hour workshops where you come you bring yourself in a, in a safe, secure, vulnerable space. And in a group, we actually explore this with um, deep dives, sharing, um, reflections. Uh, there's a bunch of pretty neat activities that people do um, uh, on their own time in between the, the two weeks of the, of, of the course, um, part-time. And um, it's, it's something that I, I know it generates so many aha moments it changes people's lives for the better. And, and if there's a part of you, which I know there is for everyone, there's parts that are holding you back. 
it's about trying to break through that and changing your relationship with it. It's not eliminating it because you can't, you can't delete Alan the Sneaky Bastard. You might at some point be able to put him in a cupboard and you know, send that cupboard off on a boat to the other side of the world, but like, he'll find his way back at some point. It's inevitable, right? So, so then it's about how do you actually like manage that? And it's not about pushing it away forever. It's about knowing that it inevitably will return. And that takes, that takes self-work and vulnerability and deep dive. And for people that want to do that, it can be absolutely life-changing. Yeah. So how can people find out more? Yeah. Go, go to the website is www.innervoice.coach. So www.innervoice.coach. The information is, is all there. You can reach out to me there directly. I, I would, I'd love to you know, hear where you're at, understand what's going on in your life, see how I could potentially um, help you there, whether it's via the workshop or whether it's uh, individual coaching and support. Um, and I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I mean, it's been great working with you uh, as, a, as a student um, and always great talking, talking with you. So I'm sure it's a, a fantastic, um, a fantastic process. I mean, I've recently chosen to specialize in my coaching practice. I, up until now, have been, um, well, when I started changing lifestyle based on all of the compelling evidence that I read, and then felt the difference and lived the difference. Um, people saw that I'd made that change and, and felt amazing and asked for information and advice and um, uh, a sounding, a safe sounding board um, away yeah. from the judgments of others. So in a, in a yeah. way I was coaching before I learned to coach, but yeah, absolutely. You know, my, my most profound change was in my mental health and I, I was diagnosed by a psychiatrist in the UK with ADHD you know we went through the whole questions and um, looking at my school report cards and um, you know doing all these qualitative and quantitative checks and you know I had documented anxiety depressive symptoms and when I changed my diet and lifestyle they didn't go away completely but it was as near as damn it. And mm. it's so mental health means so much to me because I felt that quantum leap change. And so that's the area that I'm going into um, to specialize because it's funny. I think there's an interesting thing about coaching to appeal to people. You need to, like you say, identify that pain and mm you can cast the net too wide even though you could be very useful for for anyone you have to make it clear how you can change the life of um an individual really yeah so you know there's a, there's a few interesting things there so the first part um about your your specialty and your and your chosen area you say like you have there's something that really resonates for you there and i think that you know, we, we, what coaching isn't, it's not therapy. It's not um, counseling per se. I've got the training of, I'm, I'm a medical doctor. Uh, most coaches, um, well, uh, uh, 
some coaches have, you know, a, a training in a particular area in healthcare, um, other coaches don't. So you always got to stick within your swim lane and your scope of practice as well. But the thing that I, I find so much in terms of mental health and the area of mental health is that th there's parts there that are just like normal human experience. And the word mental health or the term mental health, it means such different things to different people. And I find it's really difficult to land on a commonality of it. And so much of what I see, there's indeed people with, you know, absolute diagnosable mental health conditions, but there's also just parts of just like, this is the, this is part of being a human too. These experiences and feelings of loneliness, anxiety, depression, when they become pathological, there's absolutely a problem there, but then it's actually managing those parts and in context of your broader, broader life. So totally agree and, and and there's parts where we don't really again we go to quite frequently the distraction the the dopamine hit the avoidance the procrastination you know the sex drugs rock and roll the, the those different areas to try and and, and soothe our, our, ourselves and it's because it's it's the easier more convenient path so there's absolutely things that opportunities hugely in that space to support people and i think people that are that are craving connection craving community craving those different parts that um i i think what we mentioned in the, in the western world there's some comforts that are, are wonderful and there's also you know the, the the other side of that as well yes definitely it's um it's a great thing about coaching is it it like you say, it, it can't be medical advice. So it has to be an holistic approach. Mm. It's um, something about the modern medical paradigm, which is at once uh, a miracle and a, a curse, is this thing that we want to measure a problem, add a pill, get better. Mm. And coaching is in some ways the uh the yin to that yang where yeah in in some ways and I, and I see them as as not one or the other they can work um they can coexist exactly and, and with the with the pills it really depends you know what what are the pills we know that there's certain pills that perhaps their purported benefit is actually not as great as their actual benefit there's some that um you know so many people that like you said they just want that like magic pill right like if i can just take something and it solves my problem why don't i like do the hard work and the right so in the health sense and and we've spoken a variety of different things about coaching because some of the things we're talking about have been health coaching some of the things we've been talking about is broader coaching an element there about just life career relationships and the like and and those coaching principles no matter what discipline or domain it is hold true about the, the whole person bringing yourself that vulnerability the client's agenda powerful questions and all about your you and your own goals so i think in, in many ways um there's something there around people really wanting to feel understood and um if we look at the particularly in a health context there's been significant growth in alternative health treatments in um recent years there's like the spend on them is significantly like up year on year. And I and and my hypothesis for that quite often you mentioned like the traditional medical paradigm and I think the traditional medical paradigm really fails um some people um often from an emotional understanding point of view and people in going to these alternative areas in many ways are buying empathy. They like going for an hour consult where someone listens to me, feels me out, like 
senses where I'm at um, provide something like there's something very powerful about that. Whether the actual like, um, if there is any concoction that's given or the like, whether that's placebo, whether it works, whether it doesn't, there's something powerful about that experience. And 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 I think there with with coaching, there is absolutely um, you know a real opportunity there, and that's why I, I absolutely it's my passion it's my craft it's it's my expertise and i love working with people on it i love teaching and training people so that they can bring these principles and skills into whatever part in the world that they're already working in well more power to you carlo and the you know that all of that resonates with me i think it's astounding the changes that can be that can be realized with um with coaching so one, once again can you say what's the best way to find you and get in touch yeah so so the best way the best way uh on linkedin you can search carlo bellini c-a-r-l-o uh, surname bellini b-e-l-l-i-n-i uh, reach out to me there um website um carlo-bellini.com or the new masterclass, which is www.innervoice.coach, innervoice.coach. I've got a, a, a bunch of things that are coming out, variety of different training programs in terms of if you want to dive into the field of coaching and apply it in your life, in, um, you know, in, in, in whatever area you feel that it would add value, just like you said, Ali, you know, once you learn these principles, once you practice them, once you like adopt them, embrace them, it's not just about, you know, working in a job and having clients. What it is, it's, it's a wholesale change of your framing of relationships with people. And I've, I've had clients, students that it's, it's changed the way that they engage with their partners. It changed the quality of their relationships. It's, it's prevented um, breakdowns, prevented, you know, significant like uh, life crises and the like. So please reach out. We'd love to, love to hear where you're at. And uh, yeah, there's a bunch of exciting things that are uh, indeed in the works. Brilliant. Thanks again, Carlo. It's been, it's been a fantastic chat. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much, Ali. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks. See you next time.